2: Hello again, my friend, and welcome to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast, where we talk about everything from movies, television, and music, streaming, and uh, also things that are in theaters, things that are available out there for you to consume. Right now, we give you the lowdown on, uh, you know, what's good, what's worth your time, what's not so worth your time, and uh, try to put everything in a little bit of context as well. So... We're just trying to keep you from wasting your time because I know Andy and I have wasted plenty of our time over the years watching and listening to a lot of stuff that we probably shouldn't have. So uh, we're trying to keep you from doing the same. But anyway, I am Clint Davis, and I talk about movies and TV here on the show. Andy will be uh, joining us here in a little bit to talk about music. If this is your first time with us on the show, that's how we do it. We do it like monologues here. I say my piece, I pass it over to Andy, and then he says his piece, and then we send you out the door more well-informed about what's out there uh, available for you. If you ever have any thoughts, if you have any recommendations for things we need to check out that we haven't gotten to, um, or any titles that you're wondering about that maybe we have covered on the show because we've done a lot of episodes here, 65th one right now going into the can, and um, I know, uh, you know you you probably don't want to go back through and listen to all the old ones, but you can. They're all available for you right there at ACAST or wherever it is that you get uh, your podcasts and you can just look basically at the titles and you'll see I put like the three or four main things that we talk about in each episode in the title so it's pretty easy for you and everything we talk about is listed in the uh, description of each episode so it should be pretty easy for you to find whatever you're looking for but you can always email me at theclintdavis at com. you can email Andy as well at sedlackjournal at com. Don't forget to follow me as well on Instagram. I mentioned this uh, uh, last month during the show that I've started on my Instagram uh, page at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. Um, I've been like just chronicling basically everything that I watch this year, every movie that I watch uh, just in my stories. I just kind of show you what I'm watching at any given time. And I always welcome your comments on that, if you've seen whatever it is I'm talking about. I know I watch, I watch a lot of esoteric stuff, and I kind of jump around decade to decade, country to country. I watch a lot of foreign stuff here lately as well, just because I've seen a lot of American films already, and I've got to go way back to find a lot of ones that I haven't seen or don't know anything about. Because like I've said, I've spent pretty much my entire life doing this, raiding my library all the time, and... uh Going to every used DVD shop that there is, finding every movie that I've ever wanted to see and tracking it down any way I can and watching it. So, uh, like I said, I post them all there on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis. So if you want to see what I'm watching at any given time, uh, follow me on there and uh, definitely send me a comment or something like that if you have any thoughts on what it is I'm watching. If you have any questions, because I don't review them on there, at least not yet. I don't know. Maybe I'll get to doing that, but um, if you know if that's something you guys want to see. But if you have any questions about what it is I'm watching, if you want to know if it's worth a damn or not, because I just give it to you context-free. No, I don't say anything about it usually. Uh, Just here's what I'm watching. But that, again, is at Mr. Clint Davis. All right, I'm talking to you from beautiful Hilliard, Ohio, outside Columbus. And as I always like to do to begin each episode of the show here, Except for in very special circumstances. I'm sitting in my closet and I like to uh, light up a stogie in here. I sit in the closet because it uh, gives me good soundproofing. Just a small room, some things draped on the walls, a little bit of soundproofing in front of me and behind the microphone. And uh, a little pop filter I got about 15 years ago, kind of when I started to first do my uh, first podcasting. I did my first show in 2006 so and I'm using the same microphone that I've been using since then. So I don't know, maybe I need to upgrade my equipment now. I'm not sure. I did get a new stand recently, but no new microphone and the same pop filter I've had since 06. So that'll tell you something um, about uh, how well I take care of my stuff. And uh, like I said, I like to sit here and light up my stogie to start up the show. So let me go ahead and do that. Let's get going the way that we always do, where we talk about the greatest TV show theme song of all time, For this week, it's a segment we've been doing for years here now on the program. You can go back. I'm about to put my 38th entry in, uh, in this segment. So it's basically every month, what is the greatest TV show theme song of all time that I'm digging right now. And I have a long list of them. There are plenty more to go. We're not running out yet. Uh, I don't know how many more of these we're going to do, but we're not running out yet. I've still got a, a pretty good list of great TV show theme songs, and I'm always welcoming submissions as well for this. I have done some submissions uh, here on this segment in the past. But this one's coming directly from myself. So, like I said, the 38th entry into the canon of greatest TV show theme songs of all time. So I think virtually, and maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think virtually everyone who's grown up any since the 1980s, in America at least, went through a period where they watched MTV religiously. If you were allowed to watch it, you probably watched it, you know, anytime you got a chance. It was for a while uh, before I got into sports uh, because ESPN ended up replacing it. But when I was like an early teen, when I was like late middle school, early high school – it I all I did was watch MTV, especially in middle school. It was just MTV all the times. Only channel I watched. I never even changed a channel. I just flipped it to MTV. Didn't care what was on. Watched it all night, and uh, everything that was on there for like a three four year period, I saw it on MTV. And I mean, it was days days before DVR and stuff like that. You had to set the the VCR if you wanted to tape stuff. And I used to set the VCR to record like the Tom Green Show and uh, even like the Andy Dick Show and. A little, little bit later, some Jackass, and I'd record you know, music videos overnight because I always like to watch music videos. And that's one of the things that got me into uh, movies so heavily was watching music videos. I just thought they were amazing. Uh, but for people my age, I feel like you know, people that were born in the late 80s, the time that we were glued to the channel was from probably the late 90s to the mid-2000s. At least that, for me, was when... I uh, I all I did was watch MTV, the days of TRL, Celebrity Deathmatch, and like I said, Jackass. Um, the latter of which we've even featured on this segment before. I've had Jackass in as the greatest TV show theme song of all time. Well, there was another show that was on at that time when I was just watching MTV all the time. That I'm fully convinced made me want to be smart. And even shaped my attraction towards certain types of women. And I'm talking about 1997's Daria. And its theme song was the fantastic song You're Standing on My Neck by the band Splendora. <laughs> I loved this show. I don't know if you loved this show as much as I did, but, man, I I really loved this show. Daria was a spinoff of Beavis and Butthead, actually, but you would never know that because it pretty much had nothing to do with Beavis and Butthead at all. Daria Morgendorfer was, like, this very minor character in Beavis and Butthead. She was just in, you know, every, every now and again she'd show up in an episode, she was, like, one of the only people who liked Beavis and Butthead and certainly, like, the only girl at the school, at Highland High School, who liked Beavis and Butthead and would hang out with them. Uh, I think she got them, uh, even if she was like you know mentally much superior to both of these guys, but who wasn 't that 's not saying much so this show was a spin off it was like Daria moves away from you know Highland. Where Beavis and Butthead live and she moves to a new town and that's where this show kind of picks things up and like I said it has nothing to do with nothing in common with Beavis and Butthead whatsoever. The animation was much more beautiful, much more traditional. It featured much more nuanced characters. It had a full cast of voice voice actors rather than just having Mike Judge do all the voices himself like Beavis and Butthead did. Uh, the show followed this teenage girl named Daria Morgendorfer, who was basically the most deadpan, sarcastic, smart-ass girl that you could ever imagine. And I think she was the first girl I'd ever seen in a TV show or in a movie who was basically smart and and kind of bitchy with, like, no interest in being social. And that that was presented as a good thing. It was like she was the main character of the show. There were, certainly were had been characters like that before, but they were never the hero of the show that I can remember. They were never the lead character. Like, I can think of another one kind of like that, like Clarissa explains it all a little bit like that, but Clarissa was more, much more like, you know, I mean, she was wearing makeup, and she was more kind of traditionally feminine, and she, uh, I don't remember about her like social status at school or anything like that, but she was certainly smart and everything, and she was certainly sarcastic, but she wasn't, like, deadpan like Daria was Daria just was not interested in being social at all. She was very antisocial. She had like two friends and she was very tight with them. And she was just the way she talked that monotone voice. It was just great. It was all great. And it all fit And with her look and everything. It was, she was just a, a perfect character really. And I had never seen a character like this lead a television show, male or female really, but certainly not a woman. Um, and it basically made me want to be that way. I wanted to be like her.
3: Excuse me. Excuse me. i got to be direct. If I won't please
2: I was nine years old when Daria debuted, and I remember watching it at like 10 and 11 years old and finding myself just repulsed by the, you know, traditionally beautiful girl characters that were on the show, because, you know, it was set in a high school setting, so you had the typical, you had this character named Brittany who was this airhead cheerleader, and, you know, she dated the big football player who was even stupider than she was, and there was uh, Daria's sister, Quinn, who was whiny and, you know, really popular and older. She was like a senior. And I was just, like, repulsed by both of those characters. Those were the characters that, you know, you would have been attracted to, and the show would have kind of pined over them as it went on, and Daria, if she was like any other character that I had seen on TV before, would have been, you know, loathing that she's not like them, and why can't I be beautiful like them? Why can't I look like that? Why can't I be popular like them? But those words never came out of Daria's mouth. She didn't give a shit about any of that and never really got down on herself at all. She was just happy being how she was. And I was completely attracted to Daria. I was not attracted to these other characters. So I'm getting a little like on the I'm on the therapy couch right now, but I just remember that, you know, being 10 and 11 years old, those kind of formative years and being completely just drawn to Daria and only really liking her and not any of the other characters. She was probably my first legitimate TV crush. And I'm convinced that, you know, she made me attracted to women who were smart, like wore glasses, carried themselves a little bit more distant than other people, you know, were brunettes probably. So, um I don't think I have a type, but if I did, it would probably be that. And I think it's because of Daria.
3: Me. Me.
2: But anyway, back to the theme song. I'm getting off the therapy couch now. So You're Standing On My Neck was this tune that was written and performed by an all-woman band named Splendora. The song was actually written specifically for the show. I didn't know that. I figured this was just a, a song that this band had done. And a, someone heard it and was like, man, that's a great song for this show. But no, it was written for the show as the theme song. So a producer of this new MTV series got in touch with the band and asked them to put together a demo tape of tunes that could work as a theme song for this show about this teenage girl. And the producers chose this one. And the band later said that it was the best track on the tape by far. So they chose well. But the sad thing about all this is that it basically represents the zenith of Splendora's entire career. The band put out one album, which came before Daria even started in 1997, and they never released another album again. So they released this one album then they got the TV theme song to this you know new MTV show which is a huge deal for any band and then they never did anything else like that was it and and the band members kind of just saw split up. They went their separate ways. They got out of music. Some stayed in music. they Some got into publishing, got regular jobs, became moms, whatever. You know, life happened to them. So, You're Standing on My Neck is like the high point of this band's entire career. And this song was never even actually officially released as a regular song. And it only exists as the theme for Daria. So, if you're going to, you know, try to go out there and look for a Splendora album because you like the sound of this song and you want to find the record that this song is on, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to find it because it doesn't exist it only exists as this tv show theme song in this really kind of abbreviated version of a real song You're on my You're on my i love this song though i think it's perfect for this tv show i love how it's punky and it's kind of like lightly aggressive and the attitude of that relates so perfectly to this awesome teen girl who was just totally her own person and was an inspiration to countless kids my age to just kind of be whoever you wanted to be and act however you wanted to be um, and it's fine to talk you know shit about people and that are popular and to not really like them and not want to be like them uh not, not like the traditionally beautiful people and to kind of look however you want to look, so it was it's really cool. And you know, like I said, lightly aggressive. I mean, Daria wasn't like kicking people's asses or anything like that. She didn't. She was too apathetic to do any of that. So it was cool. I think it made it made it look cool to just not care about anything, and uh, that can be a good thing or a bad thing to show kids. But that's what Daria did for better or worse. The show ended up running for five total seasons, ending in two thousand one, but really ending in two thousand two after they did these final film-length special episodes that uh, aired in 2002. But so five seasons under its belt and its iconic theme song, You're Standing on My Neck by Splendora, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Just fit the attitude of the show so perfectly, and I can see that little circle with Daria's head in it, and uh, I just love it. What a great show. Last year, actually, MTV announced that Daria is uh, bringing the series, or that they're bringing the series Daria back. Um, So we're going to see if uh, they'll bring that song back, or maybe they'll get a new band to re-record it, or maybe Splendoro re-record it. Um, I don't know, or maybe they'll go with a whole different theme song. We'll see. What happens, but I certainly would like to see that song come back in some way or another uh, for this new iteration of Daria. All right, so we got to talk about the biggest thing that's aired on television in terms of buzz um, in the last month since we talked. And I am one of the millions of people, I haven't seen viewing numbers for this, but I have to imagine it, it has been huge for HBO. Leaving Neverland, which just aired on HBO, and it uh, is streaming right now on HBO Now. Uh, I'm not sure if it's on HBO Go, but I have to imagine it's probably on there as well because they want as many people to watch this movie as can, and I can't recommend it enough. I think uh, this movie was so different than what you usually see when you're talking about a movie about some form of violence, or a movie that's about some famous case uh famous criminal case that's happened. this is way more than that. This is not so leaving Neverland is about these two survivors of child sexual assault. Their names are Wade Robson and James Safechuck. they're roughly the same age a couple of young young men they're now like in their thirties, but they were kids in the uh in the nineties. And they both through different totally different ways, one of them's from Australia, the other one uh was is an American from California, and they both and their families both got romanticized and got very close to Michael Jackson in the heyday of when he was living at Neverland Ranch. In California, the big amusement park that he built and lived on, that insane place uh, that if you told people, you know, nowadays, like if there was a celebrity that lived like that in a place like that and hung out with kids. I mean, I can't I just can't imagine it happening. It's there's no celebrity that can come close to Michael Jackson as far as the aura and as far as I think his popularity. Like, I don't think there will ever be another celebrity that's that big. You know what I mean? Like people like the cl- the big biggest celebrity i feel like that we have now is probably like in music at least is probably beyonce and she's one of those people that has has attained like myth like status but there are still a lot of people who don't like her and she doesn't have a whole lot of songs that get on the radio really she doesn't get she doesn't release these like massive smash hits taylor swift would probably be close up there as well another person who's kind of mythic but she has certainly a lot of people who don't like her music who just can't stand her as a person, but Michael Jackson wasn't that way. Like everyone pretty much loved him, it didn't matter, race. Age, whatever, old people, young people, black people, white people, everybody loved him, thought he was amazing because he was an amazing performer and because he was involved in songwriting and writing some of the biggest hits that we've still ever heard. He had the biggest single album that anyone has ever released to this day, Thriller, uh, not not a compilation album, just a, a single album, like like one in every two houses owned a copy of that record. It was so insanely big at a time when people were buying albums um, all the time and everyone owned this record. So no one will ever really come close, I think anymore because everything's so splintered now and you can just find whatever kind of musician you like. But back then it was a little bit harder. It was still, the music industry was still more controlled by record companies and by radio stations than it is now. And Michael Jackson was a a direct beneficiary of that. He made an an insane amount of money, enough money to build his own theme park and live on it um, in the middle of California southern california and they'll just never be another person like that he could kind of do whatever he wanted he just made the rules himself so anyway this movie though is not about michael jackson that's what's so different about this movie it's not about crimes it's not there's there's there aren't any interviews with police officers investigators who were in on this case um of these boys saying that they were you know sexually assaulted by Michael Jackson. And what's also amazing about it is that these guys never said they were. So these two, both of these guys, and this is what now the Jackson family is you know, coming after HBO and people who love Michael Jackson and who haven't watched this movie yet because the only way they could criticize this movie is if they haven't seen it, I think, because the movie does such a great job of just showing you how this works and how scary it is, how it can kind of happen to anyone and the lasting effects on an entire family just from... You know, despite there only really being one true victim, it's like everyone was victimized in the end. But these two guys defended Michael Jackson all the way because they felt like he was they were in love with him and that he was like I, it wasn't like a father it was like an older brother kind of thing. But it was also like he was their husband and you know, I mean, they were kids, so they don't really know what that entails. But they and, and the lies that that uh, Jackson told them about, you know, if you guys if anyone ever finds out about what we're doing you will go to jail for the rest of your life, and so will I, and I'll never get to see you again. And, you know, and and so just all the things that he told them over years and years, and this was happening over the course of years. One of the victims, at least, Wade uh, Robson, it was over the course of seven years uh, that he was spending time with Michael Jackson, spending weeks at a time at Neverland, spending all those nights in Jackson's bed, and his parents knew about that and, you know, didn't think anything was wrong with it. And they trusted him, and they trusted uh, that he had their best interests in mind, and they were totally just uh, under the spell of celebrity and celebrity at that level, which again none of us will ever no one will ever experience again because they 'll never be a celebrity that big and that beloved again, it will just never happen i don 't think our world 's equipped for it anymore so the movie though is just about how predators work and how they are able to get you to protect them. Uh, especially with children, like how they're able to to make children into victims who will go along with it. And it it really relates very closely to what we saw with uh, the Penn State controversy a few years ago. And that's to me, that's like the biggest sex scandal that I can ever imagine that I will probably know in my entire lifetime as far as an entire institution covering things up. And, you know, no one saying anything, no one reporting it, because you see after you watch this movie kind of how it works. But there's this movie is so complex. I mean, it, it's there's nothing straightforward about it. Now it is completely one-sided because Jackson's family would wouldn't speak to the director of the movie, um, and even if they would have spoken to them, I heard uh, the inter, an interview with the director, and he was to, afterward he was telling Oprah that even if they had spoken to him, he wasn't sure that he would have even put in the movie because what were they going to say? I mean, all they were going to say were the stock. You know, classic lines about, well, they're just in it for money and all the things that everyone's heard a million times. And it wasn't going to add anything because it wasn't like they were going to speak based on facts. They were going to speak based on, well, they, they're they biased because they love this guy. Whereas these two gentlemen are talking about things that happened to them, and they're talking in such detail. And the looks in both of their eyes and the—I the, the I mean, these guys are just—I mean, they're they're fucked up. They're, like, broken— and the just the looks in their eyes, and the it, they just seem so distant. And you feel so bad for them, and by the time this movie's over, I mean, you just want to hug both of these guys. And it's a four-hour film, so it's a long movie over the course of two parts. So really, you know, you watch it in two two-hour installments, and you're not I don't think you're going to watch want to watch all four hours at once anyway. It's just too much. Um, it's just hard. And, and they go into graphic detail about the things that he did. But I got to tell you, it wasn't, The graphic detail of them talking about being sexually abused that was the part that got me the most watching this movie, Leaving Neverland. It was when they, at the end of the second part, when they talked about finally telling their family what had happened. Because for years, for decades, they had told their families, their wives, their parents, their siblings. None of this ever happened to me. Like, I don't know, because there were some victims who did come out against, you know, Michael Jackson over the years and and try to bring him down. And but these two guys always stood pat and they defended him actually in court. So they were fully like going to go to their graves with this secret. And then how it came out, like what led them to finally talk about it. It's like a combination of therapy and family members just happening to ask the right questions at the right moments Um, and just patience. And it's just crazy how and then, you know, one of the guys coming clean and going to the media actually led the other one to finally tell his wife that, yes, this happened to me as well. And I mean, that to me was the most intense part was them telling their own families. I mean, being feeling that isolated in your own family where you were a victim of something, but you don't want to tell the people who would love you and would help you through it because in your own head, you're not ready to face that. And in your own head, you've made yourself kind of believe that it didn't happen or that it wasn't abuse is what they always, what they say in the movie. It wasn't abuse. It was how I felt. It was love. And he loved me. And even though the kid's seven years old. So just, it's such an intense movie. It's so complex. The things that are happening here, so complicated and the way the movie comes at you, it's just told so slowly. And they cover every detail of these guys' lives, and there's a reason for it. You're watching the movie and you're kind of wondering in the first half, well, why am I getting into like their whole extended family? Why do I care about that? Why do I need to see their grandmother in an interview? Why do I need to hear about uh, you know Michael Jackson calling the house and not ever wanting to talk to their dad? And not ever mentioning their dad by name. Why is that detail important? Well, when you get to the final act of the movie, it becomes very apparent why it was important, um, and it's just staggering stuff. So this movie's kind of got it all. It's just it packs such a punch, and a great documentary does that. This is one of those that will kind of knock you down, and will stick with you for days. Uh, you'll be thinking about it, and it's it's complicated too because there are interviews with these boys' mothers. And they're, you know, now these women are like in their, you know, 50s, 60s, whatever. And they are still kind of coming to grips with, how did I let this happen? Like, I was, like, in in the case of one of the moms, she was in the next hotel room. The hotel room next to where Jackson and her son were sleeping. She let the boy sleep in the room with Michael Jackson because she trusted him. But was it because she trusted him, or was it because she just wanted to trust him so badly because she knew if if something weird was going on if she said no he can't sleep in your hotel room with you would she ever get to go out on tour again would she ever get to come to paris for free again would she ever get to go to hawaii on a private jet with michael jackson again if she said no if she raised a flag if she made it seem like she didn't trust him so that's what you're wondering about how much of the fault lies with the parents but you can't obviously you can't take blame away from michael jackson so don't Try to do that. Don't try to blame everyone on the outside and not the guy who was doing everything. But it's complicated because you feel bad for the parents at the same time because you get to know them over the course of this movie. But clearly they made some terrible decisions and they clearly let things like uh, this intoxicating drug that is celebrity and fame get in the way of what was their number one job as parents, which was protecting their kids and having their kids' best interests in mind. But did they have their best interests in mind? Because the kids clearly loved doing this stuff. They loved hanging out at Neverland. They had a mentor and a guy like Michael Jackson who could take them places in the world of entertainment, which both of these kids worked in entertainment, wanted to work in entertainment. So, you know, I mean, was it their best interest? Maybe it was. Who knows? Uh, because this is a guy that can open so many doors for you, but you have to be willing to suspend disbelief and kind of hope that nothing bad's happening. So it, it's just, it's so, what, and it's like, what would you do in the same situation? That's what you find yourself asking. And you'd like to think, well, I would obviously confront Michael Jackson about this and I would get to the bottom of it. And I would never let it happen. I would never let him, my kids sleep in his bed. But... That's what Jackson was like a master manipulator, and that's what this movie gets to. The things that he said, the disarming things that he did that ended up being so calculated. I mean, he just got them to believe he was this, like, asexual little—he was a kid himself who would never hurt anyone and, you know, wasn't even interested in sex with anyone, let alone with kids. So they trusted him completely and without question after a certain point. So it's just a tough tough movie to watch Leaving Neverland uh which is right now on HBO it's 4 hours over two parts and I was just blown away I thought it was really well done I thought it was so nuanced and it was um handled this subject with uh just such you know compassion and it's handled it in such a smart way I learned a lot watching this movie and I don't know. I, I just don't you know, who do you blame at the end other than other than Michael Jackson? Is there more blame to go around other than the guy who did all this? And there probably is. And it has ruined fam it, it has ruined their families. You realize that when you're watching the end of this movie, like their families are ruined because of this happened. So the the arms of something like this of child sexual abuse reach so much farther than just the victim you know, himself or herself. It it goes so much uh, farther than that. So, yeah, this movie right now is available for you to watch on HBO Now on HBO Go. Check it out, all four hours of it. I, I mean, it, am I gonna? Is it a fun watch? Fuck no, it's not a fun watch. It's not even something that you want to watch because the things you're hearing are terrible. But I think it's an important watch, and I think uh, this is really going to be the documentary to beat when it comes oscar season next year when it be, when it comes emmy season this year I, this is going to be the movie to beat because it's powerful and uh this is i mean this was a great way to start the year from hbo as far as putting out a movie that's getting everyone talking and came out at, at the right time in a, a time where i think as a country we're dealing with these kind of things and we're we're trying to open our eyes more and stop uh you know, shielding them or burying our heads in the sand as we had in decades past. We're finally ready to face up to these things and to knock heroes down that we thought were untouchable before. Heroes don't mean anything anymore. I think uh, we all realize that every one of them is capable of this kind of thing um, because we've just seen too much of it. We've just seen too much abuse of power. So uh, I couldn't recommend it anymore. Leaving Neverland, don't be expecting a, a fun watch, obviously. But the the movie's not totally like it's not all heavy just make you want to kill yourself while you're watching it. There are moments where it is light and you see joy from these kids' lives and you see um, you know what what are the things that they're passionate about and you see the good relationships that they have with their own wives and with their own kids who actually play a big part in this as well in getting them to come forward to their own family. So it's not all just a big bummer for 4 hours. I mean there there are some things in it that uh you know do kind of celebrate their strength, their resilience, and uh, the lasting relationships that they have made, despite what they went through as kids, which is just unbelievable to imagine going through at the hands of someone that you idolize so i just I can't even imagine it so I mean my heart goes out to Wade Robson to James Safechuck, and I hope these guys are all right down the road because they didn't seem it when I watch the there's also on h b o uh, streaming on hbo there 's an hour long interview that Oprah does with both of the guys and the director that came after a screening of the movie and it's it 's also i think you should watch it so I think it 's another uh, you know another hour to add to this movie because you really see like how still affected these guys are by this whole thing, and um, you get to hear more from some other survivors about how this works and about how. You know, it can come from anywhere. People that you think have your best interests in mind and who are like pillars of the community don't uh, just believe them because of their standing. You know, they got to prove it to you that they deserve your uh, that they deserve your trust. So, and even then, it's hard to trust them. So, it, just an intense movie, very powerful, and I was kind of blown away by it. So Leaving Neverland, available now on HBO Now and HBO Go. Four hours over two parts. Could not recommend it more. It's uh, one of the most powerful documentaries, I think, uh, that you'll watch this year for sure.
1: Everybody wanted to meet Michael or be with Michael. And then he likes you. I was seven years old. Michael asked, do you and the family want to come to Neverland? we drive in and forget about all your problems. You were in Neverland. It was a fantasy.
2: The days were filled with magical childhood adventure experiences, playing tag, watching movies,
4: eating junk food, anything you could ever want as a child.
1: It's like hanging out with a friend that's more your age. Just kid things. They were just doing kid things. He just came across as a loving, caring, kind soul. It was easy to believe that he was just that.
2: Out of a storybook, right? Out of a fairy tale.
1: Hello, Wade. Today is your birthday. So congratulations. I love you. Goodbye. There's no thoughts of this is wrong or anything like that. He told me if they ever found out what we were doing. He and I would go to jail for the rest of our lives. Secrets will eat you up. You feel so alone.
4: I want to be able to speak the truth
2: as loud as I had to speak the lie for so long. And I've also heard some people talking about Netflix's Abducted in Plain Sight. I have not watched this yet but uh, this apparently kind of goes along with what happens in neverland and it's kind of like you, you know you want to blame the parents for kids being abducted and for bad things happening to kids uh because parents can just be stupid sometimes and just be blind to all the dangers that are out there so that's another one i haven't checked it out yet but i'm going to have to watch it now it's called abducted in plain sight and it's on netflix and if you have seen it let me know uh, what you think is it is it comparable is it relatable to leaving neverland on HBO. Hit me up at theclintdavis at gmail All right, real quick before I pass things over to Andy, I wanted to mention another show on HBO that just wrapped up since the last time we spoke, and that is the third season of True Detective. I talked about it at uh, greater length in the last episode. If you want to hear my thoughts on the first, you know, half of the season, basically, and I was raving about it, saying that I think you know the acting is. Top-notch, absolutely the acting's top-notch in this season. The writing is back to where it was in season one where it feels more like uh, a novel and it feels like there are so many layers to this thing that you just can't wait to see how it's all going to unravel in the end. Well, season three has wrapped now. And uh, once again, I want to praise the lead actors, Mahershala Ali and Stephen Dorf. I think uh, Mahershala Ali is probably going to be in line for an Emmy For his work in this season, I know he's just coming off of his second Oscar win uh, for his work in Green Book, and I think he's going to be in line for an Emmy. I I don't know who could beat him at this point for this season because he plays this character of uh, Wayne Hayes, this detective in Arkansas. Uh, He plays this character through really four different stages in his life. He plays him all the way from his teenage years in, uh, in Vietnam in the jungles trying to survive out there uh, which we see briefly to you know him being in his like early 20s just starting out with uh, as a young detective uh, in Arkansas there then we see him kind of in his 30s he's got more years on the job and he's been you know he he's stood up to his bosses and he's paid the price for it and then we see him like in his 70s um, battling with dementia and uh, the makeup crew just did a fantastic job making him old, making Stephen Dorff's character old as well. That's his former partner who uh, they reconnect, you know, years later when they're both kind of really old. And the makeup department did a fantastic job making these guys look old and not making it look stupid or fake. Um and they just the show just transitioned so seamlessly from one time period to another, and it was kind of you know complicated to to keep up with. But their hairstyles was basically how you knew, you know which time period you were in, and little bits of acting that were done, subtle bits of acting, you could tell kind of what age they were at this point. It wasn't just the lines on their face, although those helped a lot too. So I think the makeup uh, team probably going to get an Emmy for their work on this uh, season of the show, but I think Mahershala Ali probably will as well. And Stephen Dorff makes a great case for uh, one on his own. There was just a lot of very good acting this season. Uh, The acting was, you know, as good as it's ever been on this series. The writing was, again, right there, I think, with what made the first season of this show so special with having so many mysterious little things and lots of world-building done. But I have to say, and this was a criticism of the first season as well, I think for as strong as the season was, it ended a little bit as, as an anticlimax, I think. And that was my biggest knock on the first season. A lot of people knocked it for that. It was a little anticlimactic. It wasn't quite the uh, you know thrilling ending and crazy twist and take-your-breath-away revelation that people thought it was going to be in the first season. I will give them... Uh, even more credit for this season not making it seem like it was going to be some crazy twist. Like this season wasn't who's the killer? Who's it going to be? It wasn't anything really like that because you slowly realized as time went on that this case was a little bit more complex than that. And maybe it was a little less sinister than that. Maybe it was a little bit more innocent than that. And there were several people involved. And it, it kind of slowly you realized what had happened. And in that way, I think it's better than the first season because it doesn't just all hinge on who's the killer. Who was it this whole time? Oh, it was the guy riding the lawnmower. That's how it was in the first season. And people were like, what the hell? That that guy was the big, crazy killer this whole time. So it was a disappointment. But the third season doesn't go for anything like that. It doesn't try to be a big twist ending, um, but it still, you know, tries to surprise you. And tries to shock you as well. But I think, uh, like I said, I wasn't, the ending wasn't, you know, one of like, it didn't make it one of the great things I've ever seen on television. But what made it one of the great seasons of television, uh, this year at least, was the acting, was the story, the way the story was told, which was in such a complicated, like, overwritten, dazzling way. Um, And just all this timelines being, you know, blending together there for a few scenes and um, the friendship that you saw between these two characters played by Mahershala Ali and Stephen Dorff and and the, it falling apart, what made it fall apart and them coming back together again and and burying the hatchet, um, you know, and how complex marriage can be. was That's explored in this season of the show as well. Uh, it, it, and how, you know, how complicated it can be raising kids, especially when you have a demanding job or you have something you're very passionate about, a project you're passionate about, or in the case of You know, Detective Hayes, a case that has just swallowed your entire life up. So there's a lot in here, a lot to take in. And uh, I definitely think it's worth your time if you like the style of season one of True Detective. And there's even a callback to season one. So that's kind of cool. little Easter egg stuff. Um, There's no callback to season two because I believe this season takes place before season two Chronologically, even happened, and it wouldn't have anything to do with it because they were just complete, about completely different things and they were on totally different sides of the country. Whereas the first season and this season were more like in the South, or at least, you know, the Midwest and the South, a little bit closer geographically. So, if you liked the first season, if you liked what they were doing there, that kind of language, that uh, um, kind of thing where there are still questions unanswered, give it a watch. And if you just, you know, like, this kind of dark storytelling and this kind of you know brooding acting and uh, you know just great writing and, and, and acting then give it a watch because I think it'll be right in your wheelhouse. If you're if you're somebody who wants a lot of action and if you want a lot of like fast paced dialogue and you want a big revelation in the end and a crazy mystery, I don't know if this'll really do it for you. Uh But I I thought it was a a very good season. I thought it was a good return to form because season two did disappoint so many people. This was kind of more what they were looking for. I think the setting was better um, and more fitted to what this show was going to be. And uh, they just did a good job with a small cast of characters telling a pretty complicated story that spanned decades, which is what another thing, you know, that the first season did and did very well. You didn't expect it to cover as much ground as it did in, in terms of time but it did cover a lot of ground and uh, there were a lot of uh, things unraveled over the years there and it's just a, a cool show kind of about obsession and what that can do to you so that's true detective season three now uh, streaming for you on hbo now and hbo go check it out eight episodes quick quick watch as uh, the other two seasons were of this show uh also all right, let's see what Andy's got going on out in his uh, home studio there in Dayton, and uh, we'll see what he's been listening to. What have you been checking out this month, Andy?
1: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and ZepBound for those who qualify.
0: Hey there. Great to be with you. My name is Andy Sedlak, and uh, I oversee the music department here at the Stream Police Podcast. We've got researchers working around the clock to bring you the uh, smartest, most insightful music analysis on the planet Earth. Uh, So I hope you enjoy the show. I'm going to try to get through this. I got the, the makings of a cold coming on. I'm not sure if you can tell. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I see the warning signs. It's popping up on the radar. It's coming. All right. It, it ain't here yet. Now it's starting to set in. So I'm going to try to, uh, I'm going to try to, uh, to get this done before, you know, I'm totally, totally under the weather. I figure I got maybe an hour or two left because storm's coming, baby. <laughs> All right. Uh, hey, this seems like a good time uh, to tell you, as good a time as any, that uh, if you enjoy listening to us, we encourage you uh, to please rate us five stars. Give us a positive review wherever you get your podcast. Just leave us a nice, juicy, encouraging review. That'll help us with uh, publicity. It'll help us uh, show up a little higher in search results. In other words, it'll hopefully bring us a little more uh, notoriety. So thank you very much in advance. All right, Uh, so we'll start here. Look, my girlfriend and I were watching a a movie the other night, Black Klansman. I thought it was uh, the best movie of 2018, best film of last year. Uh, So we're watching it, and and this song comes on near the beginning of the movie. That's a good one, right? So I say, God, that is just, that is, that is a great Motown song. And she says, that's Motown? I said, oh, yeah, yeah, that's Motown. Except I looked it up later, and it's not. Too Late to Turn Back by the Cornelius Brothers and Sister Rose was released in 1970 on the United Artists label. It got all the way up to number two on the charts, but... uh, was kept out of the top spot by this song.
3: Lean on me When you're not strong And I'll be your friend I'll help you carry on For it won't be long Till I'm gonna need Somebody to lean
0: on And that's also not a Motown song, although I thought it might be. It was actually released on the Sussex label. So what is Motown and what is not? We tend to think of R&B released in the 1960s and 70s as Motown. We tend to lump it all together. So let's get down to it. Let's separate fact from fiction. Let's start by saying this is Motown.
3: The best-
0: And this is Motown.
3: Oh yes, wait a minute, Mr. Boseman. Wait, wait, hey, 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 Mr. Bozeman.
0: This also Motown. You probably knew that this was released on Motown.
3: The way you smell so sweet, you know you could have been some perfume. Well you could have been in the thing that you wanted to, and I can tell the way you do the things you do, the way you
0: do all day way the way oh, you do the way you do. You do. And this one. And there's this and also this Marvin Gaye song oh, And this song by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, also released on Motown. By the way, Smokey would later be, um, uh, I got the official title here someplace, uh, vice president of the label.
3: So take a good look at my face. You'll see my smile looks out of place. If you look close, it's easy to chase the Jackson Man. My-
0: tend to think of the Four Tops as one of the quintessential Motown artists, and rightfully so, but they actually served uh, the shortest amount of time with the label compared to their contemporaries, and they left Motown for ABC Records in the early 70s. Other groups like the Supremes were with Motown, and... Uh, founder-slash-mastermind Barry Gordy for the long haul. The Temptations were one of those groups. They had a number two uh, R&B hit with Gordy as late as 1984. So The Temptations were there for a long time. Uh, That song, by the way, that was released in 84, that became the hit, I didn't even know they had a hit in the 80s, they did, called Treat Her Like a Lady, and this is it. think of Motown artists as particularly political. Uh, More that the music's politics were implied through its embrace by white audiences. But it did get political. Martha Reeves and the Vandellas released a single called I Should Be Proud in 1970. It is now considered the label's first protest song.
3: I was under the dryer when the telegram came
0: All right, separating fact from fiction, here are songs commonly mistaken for being Motown, but friends, they are not. That was on RCA.
3: You know your love.
0: That was on Brunswick. Tell
3: it like it is. Don't be ashamed to let the yellow conscience be your guide
0: That was on Parlo Records.
3: When the night has come, and the land is dark, and the moon is the only night we'll see. So I won't be afraid Oh, I won't be afraid Just as long as you stand Stand by me
0: That was on Akko I am everyday again. Yeah, yeah. That was on Epic Records All you want
3: to do it ride
0: around Saturday That was released on Atlantic Records. So, let's go back to the beginning. The Motown record label was founded in Detroit, Michigan by Barry Gordy in 1960. He was able to do this after getting a loan from family members and, in true Detroit form, gaining inspiration by watching cars come off the assembly line. He thought, why not apply the same philosophy to the entertainment industry. I used to see those cars coming in, you know, a bare metal frame, and they
1: got a brand new car. So I said, wait a minute, why can't I do that with music, my music and my, you know, with the people I work with? It's so you got an $800 semi- loan from the family to do
0: that? Uh, not very easy. I wanted a 1000
1: You too. <laughs> yeah. and, uh...
0: and that's exactly what he did. It was an assembly line in the best possible sense, not pumping out, mediocre products but high quality products at an astonishing rate like the best factories did at the time there's only one man on earth that can say that they discovered the Jackson 5 the Temptations the
1: Supremes Marvin Gaye so many more that man is you what did you see in all of these people how did you know that they were meant to be stars well first of all i didn't know you know i i just went by my intuition and I've always been a risk taker, and if I believe in something, um, you know, I would stick with it until it worked. You know, it's, it was like um, uh, the Supremes
0: took five years before they got a hit, but we believe they were great. The Supremes, and specifically Diana Ross, became uh, Motown's signature act. Countless other groups were formed to ride off of their popularity both inside and outside of Motown. At the end of the day, the Supremes put up 12 number one singles. 12 number one singles. Let's compare that with other female vocal groups like the Spice Girls. The Spice Girls had one chart topper in the U.S. How about the Pussycat Dolls? They never had a number one hit. Neither did Fifth Harmony. Destiny's Child? How many number one singles do you think Destiny's Child had? No googling. Just think, huh? Let's see, how many? How many could it be? Let's see. You're going through the you're going going through their uh, songs in your head. Ah, Bootylicious had to be number one, right? Right. They had four number one songs. The Supremes had twelve. That's how big they were. So if the Supremes were the only act that Motown ever signed, they'd still be cooking. They'd still be legendary. But they had so many other talented artists on that label. And again, they were producing talent at an unbelievable rate. Like GM in its heyday.
1: All we were trying to do was just get music for all people. You know, I I just felt that, you know, pop means popular. It means people like it. So when the white disc jockeys would not play my songs, i said, wait a minute, you're a pop company. And uh, pop means popular, and people, my records are popular, so please play them, because I want everybody to hear them. You know, I want the Jews, Gentiles, blacks, whites, cops, and the robbers, you know, (laughs) know,
0: to listen to my music, you know. Motown operated as an independent label until uh, 2005. A lot of people don't realize that. They actually had a really strong lineup of artists in the late 90s. Remember this song? This, this was a Motown song. And back at one, that album went triple platinum. Motown also had Erica Badu on its label. And uh, had 702, which had a huge hit with a song originally meant for Destiny's Child. I think uh, some of you will remember it. Yeah, that's a Motown song. Throughout its entire run, Motown always had Stevie Wonder signed to its label. Others came and went. Even Diana Ross came and went. Uh, different points but Stevie Wonder has been with Motown for his entire
2: career
4: the way that I got to Motown was me being outside hearing this music and wanting to go where I heard this music coming from and that's where it all began I was on this uh, front porch of his friends they arranged for me to go to Motown and audition for some of the people there They called Barry Gordy on the phone while I was there saying we got this kid who plays piano, harmonica, bongos, drums, la 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 la. And um, he listened to me and it all began there.
0: Oh, by the way, just for the hell of it. Here's uh, here's Stevie telling a story about how he wrote Superstition.
4: Well, you know, Superstition, I started writing uh, the, the song, I was playing drums. And I came in with a and I remember wash your face and hands. And I think I was thinking of wash your face and hands because of can I let Ben wash your face and hands? I mean, as a little boy, I remember shake, and roll, and so you know that came to my mind. But the idea was basically uh, talking about things that people, uh, you know believed in. Uh, 13-month-old baby broke the looking glass, you know, seven years of bad luck, good things in your past. You're just sort of like when you believe in things you don't understand, you suffer.
0: Pretty cool, huh? It's all cyclical, baby. Anyway, Motown is now a subsidiary of Capitol Records. Uh Neo, probably the biggest artist signed to Motown at the moment. So Are we all caught up in Motown? It was a good excuse to take a deep dive, you know, into one of the most legendary wellsprings of uh, American music ever. And that's one of the important things to remember, frankly, about Motown, is that that music, good music, has come from all over. But what that label put out was uniquely American, Midwestern even, working class. And it's just... uh, it's just great stuff. I love it. So don't you
4: be standing in the shadow of love?
3: I'm getting better for the hardest to come. Don't you see me standing in the shadow of love? I'm the best get better for the hardest to come.
0: Okay. This is March. March is Women's History Month, so I thought it would be appropriate to uh, mention that the most popular song of 2018 belonged to a woman. Camila Cabello's Havana was named uh, the top digital single of the year with a global total converted track equivalent. Yeah, you, you catch that. That's how they measure sales these days of 19 million. 19 million. Beat the hell out of the next competitor, Drake, God's Plan. And also uh, outsold other singles of 2018 like Ed Sheeran's Shape of You and and Girls Like You from Maroon 5 and Cardi B. Havana hit number one in a shitload of countries. A few of them, uh, the U.S., Australia, Brazil, Canada, France, Mexico, Scotland, the U.K. I'm not sure if anyone still watches the VMAs, but it did win Video of the Year. A live version was released in 2018. Also successful, in fact, it was nominated for a Grammy. Spotify has announced that the song has been streamed on its service more than one billion with a B times. She played it live on the Today Show in September of 17 and dedicated it to the dreamers affected by DACA. Giving the song somewhat a a subtle political context. It's worth noting that uh, Young Thug is featured on the track. He's actually a featured writer on Childish Gambino's this is America. I bet you didn't know that. Anyway, praise be to Camila Cabello. She's currently in the studio working, uh, working on her follow-up album. This would be a second solo record, like the first one. Listen to it in its entirety. Kind of pumped for the follow-up. <laughs> You know that we're building the most perfect playlist known to man. Every month we add five more songs to said playlist, which you can find on Spotify by searching Stream Police. Check it out. I think you'll have a ball. The first song this month is My My Kind of Girl by The Ramones. Second, uh, why not? It's girls just want to have fun. Third, South of the River by Ray Wiley Hubbard. then don't make me wait by the dynamic duo of Sting and Shaggy. Finally, I give you I'm So Bad Baby I Don't Care by Motorhead. Thank you. It's always fun. I'm going to go take some NyQuil, a few cough drops, and uh, hope for the best. Say a prayer for me. Because I'm feeling under the weather.
3: Whew.
0: All right, talk to you in a month. Peace out.
2: I'm still just sitting here, you know, puffing my stogie, thinking about how messed up Leaving Neverland was, how intense that movie was. So, to uh, kind of take it the opposite direction, real quick, I want to mention a a show that makes you feel much better when you watch it. It's much more light and fun. Uh, In fact, one of the funnest shows on TV, there's a new season of Queer Eye coming out on Netflix on March 15th, so that'll be coming out uh, very soon might already be out, depending on when you 're listening to this episode and this new season it'll be the third season of the netflix series it 's uh going to be emanating from Kansas City this time. They kind of you know go to a different like city usually usually a rural area and um hit a bunch of contestants i don 't know who you, what you call them they have a word for them i can 't remember what it is, but I always call them contestants on this show, even though you 're not really there 's no prizes to win it 's just uh these you know, five very talented and uh, funny and endearing gay men come and try to make your life a lot better. And uh, this season, like I said, they're going to be doing it from Kansas City. And it's the third season of new episodes of Queer Eye from Netflix. They've kind of done like a breakneck schedule here, like two seasons a year. So, but I'm not complaining at all because I've really enjoyed every episode of this show so far. It's just really well done as far as a reality series goes. It's such a cut above what 's on network t v and there's just a lot of heart in it and it's it's just fun and these guys are just relatable likable um and they don't you know they 're not like judging people and but they're just genuinely trying to help them make their lives better and uh make them kind of you know like more appealing to other people and make them you know more approachable and make them feel more comfortable about themselves it's a, it's a really it's a cool show and they casted it masterfully they couldn't have done any better getting the uh, Fab Five picked out for this version of Queer Eye on Netflix. So like I said, season three, hitting Netflix on March 15th. All right, we've talked a lot about television, as we uh, always like to do, especially in the first part of the show here. But let me shift over to movies and uh, mention... What I, something that I do every year, and I always do it about this time. I know it seems probably a little bit late, but but I think you know it just takes a while to uh, kind of watch finally all the movies that were that were meaningful, that were notable from a given year. So I want to give you my top five list of movies from 2018. I know, look, it's March 2019, we're into it. You might be listening to this show in April of 2019, four months into the into the year uh, of 2019, but. I want to count down my five uh, best movies from 2018, the ones I like the best, because it's a segment I do every year. It's one I look forward to putting together for you. And um, hopefully, these if these are movies you haven't checked out yet, this will give you a little bit more incentive to go and see them. I have to say, 2018, I think, was a weak year. Uh, overall, in my humble opinion, I think it was a weak year at the top. there, uh, And you saw that kind of just... If you look at the Oscars and how many movies won Oscars, that usually tells you that, I mean, there wasn't one that kind of blew everyone away. There were a lot of them that were just kind of on even footing. And the Best Picture winner is one that, you know, got kind of lukewarm reviews to begin with. So whenever that happens, it's usually a bad sign for the entire year of movies. But with that being said, it being kind of a weak year overall, the the, the five here I've got is my favorites. I think we're very good. These were very strong movies and these are definitely five films that are worth your time. And I've got something for everybody here, which isn't necessarily always the case in my top five. Sometimes uh, I stick, I I like dramas a lot, so I stick with a lot of dramas. I didn't do that this time. I think this year uh, was very strong for action films. It was very strong even for comedy and um, it was very strong for sci-fi. So let me get to uh, my top five movies of 2018. So first off, number five was a movie that I watched uh, for the first time, I believe, on Netflix. And it's a romantic comedy that's set in a high school and taken from the perspective of a gay teen. And the movie is called Love, Simon. I really liked this film. Usually you would not see a romantic comedy get anywhere near my top five movies of the year. But this one was so strong and this one uh, kind of changed the genre for me. And kind of re, uh, you know, retooled it to tell the, tell it from a perspective of a character and a type of person that we've never seen lead a movie like this before—a gay teenager—and um, the movie was just so funny, and it felt, you know, real, and it felt sweet, and I think it felt timeless as well. I think it's it's. Much more timeless than some of those 80s romantic uh, teen comedies that you look back on now and you see kind of some of the uh, uh, problems with them and some of the the racism and the sexism that's still there. I think this one will hold up uh, for generations to come and will be a great example of what you can do with the worn out tired genre of teen romance and romantic comedy in general. The movie was directed by Greg Berlanti, and, uh, who I believe is gay man himself, and uh, that was one of the reasons why he wanted to do this film. It was kind of a passion project for him. And the movie stars Nick Robinson as Simon. What the film is about is a, a kid who falls in love with um, another student at the school, and this kid's not out uh, at school. And neither is the kid that he's in love with, but they've been talking to each other anonymously uh on the internet, and they don't neither of them knows who the other person is, so the whole film is like him trying to figure out well who is it that I'm talking to because I'm in love with him they have um the way that you know he writes his messages are just so beautiful and it speaks right to him, and um he desperately wants to know who this is, but you know it's dangerous because, like I said, neither of these guys are out, and even though it's you know obviously very much more accepted now than it was then. Still, it's hard to be gay uh, anywhere and to be out and gay is, you know, takes a certain level of confidence that a lot of teenagers don't have yet. So um, the, you know, the movie kind of ends up being like a mystery, like who is this person? He's trying to figure it out through the whole film and um, and, you know, finally, in the end, obviously does. So it's kind of a really cool twist on the the genre and also kind of the same as a movie like. Um, The shop around the corner or you've got mail when it's got the anonymous pen pal love letter thing going on Uh, but also a little bit of like a 10 things I hate about you kind of uh, attitude and vibe from the high school and the kids at the school and I just really enjoyed it I really liked it I had a lot of fun watching this movie and uh, I thought it was very funny had a lot of heart it was well acted well done good movie from top to bottom it's my fifth best movie of 2018 it's Love, Simon
3: Have you ever been in love?
2: I think so.
1: Abby? Yeah? I'm gay. Oh. You can't tell anyone, though. Nobody really knows, and I don't really want people to find out.
3: I won't. I promise.
1: (laughs) You surprised?
3: No. So you knew? No. But you're not surprised. Do you want me to be surprised? I don't know. Okay. Well, I love you.
2: Find that one wherever you can. You will definitely enjoy it if you have a date night or something like that and you're looking for a movie to watch at home. All right, number 4 on the list is probably one that you've already seen because I think everybody on earth has seen this at this point. It's Marvel's Black Panther. This one really just changed the game as far as superhero films go and certainly as far as the individual like Marvel superhero origin story movies go, like the the new characters, like they've done ones with Doctor Strange and with Ant-Man and now Captain Marvel just came out. And, you know, a couple, those have been kind of hit and miss. Those haven't been quite as essential as like the original, like the Captain America was or like Iron Man was um, or even the Thor movies were to a lesser extent. Uh, but Black Panther was that essential movie and it felt so big because it had all these other Marvel characters in it. It felt like an Avengers movie um, almost. And it was just so the world that they built in it, Wakanda, was so well rendered and felt so real and it felt like such a fantasy land uh for not just black people which i'm sure i can't even imagine how much of a fantasy land that felt like for black people but just for anyone you know who wants to believe that this world exists that this place is out there that they have this technology um it was just very cool so well done there was so much imagination behind this film. There was even there was so much heart. The action scenes were well done, and it has the best villain that we've maybe ever seen in a Marvel movie, certainly you know, probably since Loki, I would say the best villain that we've seen in a Marvel movie, and that goes a very long way in making a movie you know worth your time. The Mandarin was a really good villain uh, also in Iron, uh, Iron Man 3, but Black Panther just did everything right. And it was like nearly the the principal cast was like all black, which is so rare for a movie that costs this kind of money and would make this kind of money. Um, I think it just broke so many barriers down, kind of continuing what uh, Wonder Woman did a couple years ago. And that one was a great one as well. But Black Panther was even better. And that's what happens when you've got a director like Ryan Coogler, who's one of my absolute favorite directors on the planet. The guy cannot miss. Fruitvale Station was one of my favorite movies the year it came out. Um, Creed was one of my favorite movies the year it came out. And now you've got Black Panther. So this guy just can't miss. He's one of the best directors that we have working today. And he's just done He's he's done everything very well. And the cast was great as well. Chadwick Boseman, Michael B. Jordan. I mean, those two guys, pretty much anything they do is going to be good. Be, Michael B. Jordan really Really made the movie, I think, for a lot of people. But Letitia Wright stole the film completely as uh, uh, T'Challa's young sister, who was like the genius of the family and who invented all the you know scientific developments that helped the Black Panther uh, do the things that he needed to do. So, really cool movie. If you somehow missed it, and if you're somehow like still wondering, well, I mean, how could this be up for Best Picture, and how could you know? what I don't, I don't buy the hype on this film. Um, This was the one I would have liked to have seen win Best Picture this year. I think it would have just spoken volumes about, you know, superhero movies and what they are capable of, what they can do. Um, Certainly the hype is worth it with this movie. Check it out. Um, Do yourself a favor and just turn it on and turn it up, man. The music in this movie is as good as it gets. And it's just a beautiful film. Watch it in high definition. You will not regret it. If you've missed Black Panther, that's my fourth best movie of the year only reason I don't kill you where you stand is because I know who you are.
4: Now what do you want? I want the throne. <laughs> hey,
3: you, the tuna.
4: <laughs> Y'all sitting up here comfortable. Must feel good. It's about two billion people all over the world that looks like us. But their lives are a lot harder. Wakanda has the tools to liberate them all. And what
2: tourists are those you, Man, just thinking about Black Panther again gets me pumped up. I haven't watched it in, you know, almost a year now at this point. It came out kind of early in 2018, but I'm still I still remember it very vividly. Number three, my third favorite movie of twenty eighteen, was uh, a an Academy Award nominated and it did end up winning, I think only one, maybe two this year, but I really loved this movie. It was the favorite and this was my favorite straight drama of the year. I talked about it last month on the show in more detail if you want to hear a full review of the film but uh, this movie I, what I liked about it so much was that it was just so different it was it's a period piece you look at the trailer for it you look at the um, Some of the screen grabs from the movie and you see those costumes, those ornate costumes, those big halls, those sets. And you kind of think of a movie like Barry Lyndon or you think of a movie, um, you know, like a Dangerous Liaisons or you think of like those BBC, um, those BBC miniseries of those Jane Austen books. And, yeah, certainly it has a little bit of that in it. But this movie takes everything kind of. In such a weird, unpredictable direction and the language that the characters use, I mean, this is a hard R movie, tons of cursing being done, tons of awful language being used by the people who are in the royal family and like the Queen of England, who is one of the main characters of the movie. And what the movie is about is the queen and these two advisors. One of which uh, starts out, you know, kind of like it's a Cinderella story. She starts out mopping the floors and then ends up becoming one of the most trusted advisors of the queen. It's like a rags to riches kind of thing. Uh, These two women are vying to be the favorite of the queen and are both kind of stabbing each other in the back, stabbing the queen in the back. There's a lot of treachery in this movie, Um, and there's just a lot of great characters, very funny uh at times but also very stark and sad as far as what people will do to get to the top and who they'll bury to get to the top so it's just a tough movie really cool and it surprised me every step of the way which is one of the best things you can say about a film at this point i've seen so many of them it's hard for movies to surprise me but the favorite surprised me and had such a unique voice all its own and i think a lot of that comes down to writer and director yorgos lanthimos who has done some of the most unique movies in recent years. He did a movie called The Lobster a few years ago, which I didn't really like, but I think I need to go back and revisit it because he followed that up with a movie that he shot in Cincinnati uh, called The Killing of a Sacred Deer, and I, I loved that film. I thought it was gorgeous. I thought Cincinnati's never looked better in a movie. It even looked better than in Rain Man, and uh, it was just such a unique way to do like horror and like a thriller, and it was so frightening, and it just made you feel unnerved the whole time, and you didn't really know why. But, um, and it was certainly a unique, strange movie. But I really loved that one a couple years ago, or maybe that was last year. Well, at this point, it would have been two years ago, 2017. But the favorite was uh, even better. So this guy, I just continue to like him more and more, Yorgos Lanthimos. And Emma Stone, Rachel Weisz, and Olivia Colman, who won an Oscar for her work in the movie, deservedly, um, were just great in this film. It's the most I've ever liked Emma Stone in a movie, even though she was completely nasty in this movie. I really liked her performance here. So, The Favorite is my third favorite movie of the year. If you like dramas, you like period pieces, don't go into it expecting what you usually get. Um, but go into it with an open mind. I think you'll really like it.
3: None to the Queen. What? What, you cannot have hot chocolate. Your stomach. The sugar inflames it. Abigail, hand me that cup. Do not. I'm sorry. I do not know what to do. Oh, fine. Give it to her and you can get a bucket in a mop for the
2: aftermath. Number two this year. I'm going with an action film, actually, so uh, that might surprise you a little bit because usually, again, here's a genre that doesn't hit my top five, but I've got two action movies in the top five with Black Panther and now Mission Impossible Fallout. Mission Impossible is my favorite franchise of action you know, movies that there's ever been. I've said it before on the show that that every one of them is great except for the second one kind of sucks, but uh, it's, it's typical John Woo, so if you... Like John Woo, you might actually love it, but the second one kind of sucks. But the rest of them are great. I'm talking about great movies and not just great action movies, but they're just so entertaining, so thrilling. Uh, Tom Cruise is perfect in all of them. This is you know really like kind of the role he was born to play. And uh, Mission Impossible Fallout is probably the best one of all of them. Um, Which is saying something here now. What are we, six movies? Yeah, six movies into the franchise and now we're getting the best one that they've ever done. Uh, And I I say that, you know, I love all of them. I've watched all of them multiple times, including Fallout now. And I do think it's the best one. I think it's uh, got the best story. I think it has the highest stakes. I think the special effects are better than they've ever been. The action scenes were breathtaking. The uh, characters were very memorable, including the side characters and the villains. But I was just blown away. I mean, I like had my breath taken away by a couple of the action scenes while watching Mission Impossible Fallout in theaters. Um, And I couldn't recommend this one enough. If you like action movies at all, you have to check out Mission Impossible Fallout. I have to give a ton of credit to uh, writer and director Christopher McQuarrie, who actually did Rogue Nation as well, which was another. It was a really good one uh, just before Fallout a couple years ago. This series just keeps getting better, keeps telling better stories and uh, keeps showing why we love these kind of big action movies? Why the Bond franchise has gone on for so long? Because we just love spy stories and uh, this over the top stuff with people like skydiving and fighting in midair, and it's just all great. This, this movie just kind of pulls out all the stops, and I don't know how they could top it. Honestly, I was like, after it was done, I'm like, well, where do they go from here? Because I think they did everything they could do in that movie, and they did it all very well. And Henry Cavill. Uh, my favorite performance he's ever done I was glad to see him as a villain I think he's much better as a villain than as a hero Much more compelling um, And just an intimidating looking guy When he's going against you um, as a villain So it, just a really uh, Really intense movie Lots of twists and turns Very well done Mission Impossible Fallout It's my second favorite movie of the year Yeah it's a big action movie But it's not dumb It's smart And it's very well done And uh, you gotta check it out if you haven't seen it already You, you, you're gaining
0: on him. Go straight. Straight! Keep going straight!
2: Go straight! Go straight, straight, straight! Okay, that's right. Right? Now? Yes, right! Are you
0: sure? Yes, I'm Oh, it's left! Turn left! Sorry I had the screen lock on. Thank you.
2: For I'm jumping out a window. What do you mean you're jumping out of a? W- oh, sorry, I had it in 2D. Good luck. And finally, my number one movie of 2018. I'm going in an unexpected direction here as well. You know, horror is a genre that I usually like to keep in my top five every year. I kind of find a place for a horror movie for one that really blows me away because I think as a genre. It just is underrated, and when it's really well done, when it's done with a director, with a writer, with actors who take it seriously, horror is just hard to beat. It's uh, It just makes you feel things that other movies can't really make you feel, and it's all just through, it's all on a screen. But you still feel like these things are going to get you, or they're going to affect you somehow, but it's just all on a screen, done on a stage with actors, uh, but that's what's so special about horror. And this year, my favorite movie of the year was also my favorite horror movie in years. It was a film called Hereditary. And this is the most unnerving, chilling movie that I've seen in years. It made, me, um, it, made it hard for me to sleep. Uh, I've watched it twice now. Both times made it hard for me to sleep. It just creeps you out. It, the movie starts out for about the first—it's like a two-hour movie. And for the first hour, it's like a regular drama. So you feel like you're just watching a drama. I think this movie's almost better if you don't even know it is a horror movie. Like, if you just go into it, like, you want to watch this movie, Hereditary, and you don't know anything about it. Of course, I'm ruining that for you now. But if you just think of this, if you watch it and you think of it as, I'm watching a drama. You'll realize that everything is like they're just things that you see in dramas. You just you're getting to know the characters very well. Um, there's a lot of big character moments. There's a really sad tragedy that happens that it has nothing to do with horror in any way. It's not some you know crazy serial killer on the loose, or it's not anything supernatural. It's just something awful, an accident that happens, um, and you're just kind of sucked into the movie. And by the time the horror elements of it start to show up, you're so engrossed in it and you care about the characters so much that, uh, it just makes the whole thing even more chilling and it all just kind of comes out of nowhere. But then you realize it's been there the whole time. This is one that's even better with multiple viewings, which are the best kind of movies. The director of this movie, Ari Aster, I have to give so much credit to him. He just made this thing so memorable visually. There are so many visuals in this film. I'll never forget. um, From the tiny houses to what happens with the car to uh, the awful grisly sight that's laying on the side of the road that we see in close up for like way too long uh, that was making people very uncomfortable in the theater. Um, This movie just had so many surprises and it it just kind of comes up out of nowhere and stuns you. When it does turn into a horror movie and it just happens so slowly and so organically, I was blown away by this movie. No movie made me feel the way this film did uh, all year. And it's very well acted. It's got a great cast Tony Collette, Gabriel Byrne, and Dowd. I mean, those are three serious heavyweight actors uh, in this movie. And young uh, Alex Wolf did a great job as well, kind of being the uh, the, the main kind of audience surrogate. Uh, that we all kind of have to relate to in this movie. So this is just well done. This is what you can do with horror when it's done at its best. And uh, that's why it's my favorite movie of the year. Number one in 2018, Hereditary. Check it out and uh, don't blame me if you can't get any sleep. I already warned you. Mom,
3: what are you doing? What's going on? You were sleepwalking. I'm sorry. Is Charlie here? Why are you scared of me? What? I never wanted to be your mother. Why? I was scared. I didn't feel like a mother. But she pressured me. Then why did you have me? It wasn't my fault! I tried to stop it! How? I tried to have a miscarriage. How? However I could. I did everything they told me not to do, but it didn't work. I'm happy it didn't
1: work. You tried to kill me.
3: You to I, kill me. You to I love kill you. Me.
2: So there you go. A little different in my top five list this year. Only one drama. We've got romantic comedies, we've got action movies, and we've got horror all filling up my top five. Don't call me a pretentious prick. All right? So like I said, overall, I thought it was kind of a weak year, but uh, at the top there, those five movies, I loved all of them. They're very good. I think you'll enjoy every single one of them for different reasons as well. All right, uh, last uh, couple things here. Uh, Like I said, last month, new segment I wanted to introduce was a, a segment called The Best Thing I Watched This Month. I watched a ton of stuff this month. And while uh, Leaving Neverland is right up there, I have to say the best thing that I watched this month was a movie from 1984 called Paris, Texas. This was a Vem Vendors movie. If you've never seen any of Vem Vendors movie, he's like a rock and roll director um, who really knew how to use music well, knew how to use um, setting very well, who knew how to tell stories of like rebels and outlaws in modern in, in the modern world. And he's kind of like, if you like the movie Easy Rider, he's kind of like that. Like, he didn't direct that. But his movies all have that same kind of feeling of freedom of, uh, you know, just kind of bucking society. And that's how Paris, Texas had a little bit of that in it as well. It had this great lead performance by Harry Dean Stanton, who we lost not very long ago. The movie was written by Sam Shepard, who we also lost not very long ago. Uh, The music is done by Ry Cooder. The um, cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. It's uh, got classic pictures of kind of the American uh, South and West, especially in Texas, like, you know, where the the title is. The movie is set there. There's also some scenes in California. But uh, this movie was just gorgeous, and it it was a a great story about family and trying to keep family together after uh, things. People have kind of gone their separate way, trying to reunite your family, trying to get it back together. Uh, after people have kind of lost their way, lost their minds, and uh, how righteous a journey that can be, and how uh, you know how tough that can be as well, um, and how complicated you know marriages and, and having a kid is as well. So uh, Paris, Texas, couldn't recommend that anymore. If you track down a copy of it, it's available from the Criterion Collection. I thought they were supposed to be doing some kind of streaming service here soon. If they do, I'll definitely be signing up for that one because uh, I watch enough of their movies anyway. And they're always, you know I mean? They're always interesting at least. They're not always great, but they're always interesting. But Paris, Texas was one that was great. It's from nineteen eighty four, directed by Vem Vendors, and uh couldn't recommend it anymore. It's the best thing I watched this month. Sam Shepard, man, he just knew man, what a great writer. Everything I've ever seen, plays, movies that he's written, um, anything that I've ever read or watched or listened to by um by Sam Shepard just just blows me away. There's, something, there's just something so subtle and cryptic about the way that that guy writes that other people just don't really write that way. He just has such a unique voice, had such a unique voice. It's, it's awful. That was one of uh, the saddest losses of recent memory. And when he's an actor, when he's in something, man, he just has such great presence, too. I love Sam Shepard. It's one of my... All-time heroes. All right, so let me send you home, as I always do, by giving you a recommendation on Netflix and a recommendation, or two recommendations, I should say, on Netflix and two from Amazon, one serious and one funny. i got to say, this month, uh, usually I, I like to pick things that are new for the month. Um so that I know they'll be available for you to watch still. It was a pretty weak uh, month of new movies on Netflix and new ones on Amazon, so I was uh, the, the pickings were kind of slim, but uh, I've got some good picks for you regardless, because I'll find them no matter how slim the pickings are. Something funny for you on Netflix from 2005, it's The 40-Year-Old Virgin. If you missed this one, uh, this was kind of what... <laughs> this is, I mean, The Office is Steve Carell's signature role, but in movies, to me, this is going to always be his signature role as literally a 40-year-old virgin and a guy who works at like a, a Circuit City Best Buy kind of store. And just to his his pals are the guys who work there with him. They're played by Seth Rogen and Paul Rudd. And um, it, it's it's just <laughs> it's a very funny movie. It's Judd Apatow probably. It's probably his best work. I like Knocked Up a lot too, but I think Carell just carries this. He's so earnest in this movie. And Catherine Keener, the great Catherine Keener, is in it as well she does uh, amazing work as always whenever she's in anything i've said it before it immediately adds legitimacy and it makes the movie worth your time i think so the 40 year old virgin from 2005 that's a pretty unforgettable one and a pretty damn funny one still to this day so check that out on netflix now if you somehow missed it it's a little long though for a comedy so if you're looking for a quick watch that's not going to be it Also, something serious for you on Netflix. This one was recommended to me by Beth, who said uh, that she was like, next month when you do your uh, something serious on Netflix, you got to put in A Separation from 2011. Yes, this was a movie that Beth and I watched uh, years ago. We watched it in 2012, I think, after it had come out. And it had been raved about, and um, that's the sad thing with foreign movies—we only really see the ones that kind of get American releases and get American approval. So uh, it's a shame, but uh, it, the, it seems like there's a handful of foreign movies, you know, every year that are like must-sees, and A Separation was one of them uh, in the last few years. This one just has kind of stuck with me this whole time, and I, I still think about it. And it, it was just a really heavy, hard-hitting drama. Uh, So not a light watch at all. It's really it shows you kind of it's hard to be a kid when your parents are not getting along or are selfish people. Uh, The effect that it can have on a young mind is uh, is great. And the uh, separation goes into that, among other things. This is really a movie about the complicated relationships and families, the relationships between parents and children. And uh, I couldn't recommend this one anymore. It was very good, stunning movie. It's called A Separation and it's on Netflix now. It's from Iran from 2011. And on Amazon this month, something funny for you. They don't have much, I'm telling you. So my pick this month is a little weak. It's Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 1989. The only reason I'm going to throw this one at you is because Keanu Reeves plays the role he was born to play and... The great George Carlin plays a huge role in the film as well, and it gave us the uh, uh, pronunciation Socrates for Socrates, so you gotta got to love it for that. So Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure from 1989 is now on Amazon. That's the best I could come up with. And uh, something serious for you, much better movie from 1999, American Beauty. This was a movie that knocked me on my ass the first time I watched it. I think I was... I, 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 this is going to make my parents sound terrible, but I think I was about 12 years old first time I watched this movie. I saw it shortly after it came out, after it won the Oscar, and I had, was just kind of getting into following film and knowing kind of what, hearing about what the important movies were and, and, and knowing what the Oscars were, what they meant. And this movie just blew me away. I had never seen anything like it. I had never uh, seen characters that were this vivid. I had never heard, um, you know, kind of language that was like this, not language that was like bad language, but it was just, it felt real. And it felt, uh, it just felt like something. And the visuals just have stuck with me over all these years, those red roses and Annette Benning crying on the floor of that house that she's showing after vacuuming and cleaning it up. And, uh, you know, Lester Burnham, you know, lifting weights out in his garage and Chris Cooper with blood all over his shirt. It's just a, just a lot of... Uh, images that have stuck with me for so long from that movie, it's still one of my favorites and it blew me away the first time I ever saw it. It was a game changer for me as far as my uh, film fandom goes. So American Beauty is right now on Amazon. If you missed it after all these years, that's one of my favorite Best Picture winners of all time. So check it out. Do yourself a favor. All right. That's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Thanks for hanging out with us again this month. We'll be back with you uh, here in about 30 days or so. If you ever have any thoughts or you have recommendations or uh, anything like that, give me a shout at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E-Clint-Davis at gmail.com. And also, Andy, you can reach him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, Journal at gmail.com and follow me on instagram to see what i'm watching at any given time at mr clint davis mr clint davis thanks a lot my friend we'll talk to you next time always enjoy hanging out with you and talking movies and tv until then stream on